In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, I, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Pure Perception. Why pure perception? I never, never mentioned that, did I, when we started? I think the idea was that um, that uh, whereas the the emphasis on uh, the teachings that uh, come down from the Garjana and his successors emphasizes emptiness and the teachings that come down from Masanga, Maitreya, Sangha, Vasubandhu and their buddies represent uh, appearance, uh, uh, pure appearance, the appearance of uh, reality to an enlightened person, a Buddha. And um, Buddha's experience of pure reality because they're, they're not, uh, they don't have any afflictions or obscurations. Bless you. Ah, sorry. I tried to mute it, but not quickly enough. And so, uh, tonight, I had thought that it might be helpful if we go through a, like a background piece on Yogacara that was a little bit easier to comprehend and thereby uh, have a little bit of an easier time understanding Carl's introduction and then the texts by Vong Jung Dorje. And uh, I had come across this article by uh, Dan Lusthaus some time ago and thought it might serve that purpose. And uh, we should know that this gentleman, Dan Lust, however you pronounce his last name, Dan, let's call him Dan, he uh, is a, uh, specializes primarily in the uh, Chinese tradition of Buddhism, and, the, and therefore the Chinese version of Yogacara. He's extremely prolific in that area, and uh, if you're interested in Yogacara, you Google him and his activities and writings, and there's a lot of stuff. I think there's like a Yogacara society or something that he leads, but um, he also has a, a big book called, I think, The, the Buddhist Unconscious. <laughs> sort of like the big muddy. But um, I thought maybe the easiest way is to go through uh, the article on screen. Um, 
so we can all look at what I'm talking about together if that if that's okay because otherwise it's it's hard to jump around uh, especially because he didn't number the pages <laughs> and it would be very difficult I know I know that was stupid of me I, I copied his article from somewhere and uh, I, I am the one at fault for that and I just circulated a numbered page number copy but uh, albeit too late so anyway I'm gonna sh I'll put him up on screen here and uh, we can dive into that if that's okay but I must say I really enjoyed it I thought he was great tying it into Western philosophy oh good very good I, I don't know anything about Western philosophy, so I skipped that part. But I'm glad that it was it was relevant and helpful and right on. So when we get there, we, we can you chime in. So uh, Yogacara is one of the two schools. Its founding is ascribed to Sangha and Vasubhanu. Uh, but the tenets were in circulation for at least a century before these gentlemen were alive. And it focuses primarily on cognition in order to, on, the, on how cognition happens, the processes involved in it, in order to overcome ignorance that prevents one from attaining liberation. So the focus, like all Buddhist traditions, is on attaining liberation uh, from samsara. And the, the strategy is to focus on ignorance. How, in what way are we ignorant? And that has to do with the mind and the way the mind uh, operates and uh, cognizes or uh, experiences itself and its world. So they uh, uh, exerted sustained attention to cognition, consciousness, perception, all of which are included in this interesting word called epistemology. And they're famous for the claim external objects do not exist, which has led to uh, some misinterpretations of Yogacara's uh, metaphysical ide idealism. However, so this gentleman, Dan, goes, uh, goes on at some length to uh, refute this assertion about uh, the absence of external objects, which, which is interesting because... Uh, in some ways, his presentation, I think, is different than the Tibetan version. So let's see what his version is, and then we can go from there. They did not focus on consciousness to assert it as ultimately real. And so he says that uh, Yogacara never asserts consciousness to be ultimately real, just like they don't assert that external objects do not exist. But the emphasis is on consciousness because it is the cause of the karmic problems that cause samsara, which they want to eliminate. They introduced several new schemes to Buddhism, including uh, the Vijnapti Matra, nothing but cognition, the three self-natures, or the three natures, the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma, and a system of eight consciousnesses, as opposed to the earlier system of six. And uh, they ended up developing two important systems, an elaborate psychological therapeutic system that mapped out the problems in cognition along with antidotes. 
some sort of psychological uh, path of Buddhism, and an earnest epistemological endeavor that led to some of the most sophisticated work on perception and logic that ever existed. So roughly they took the, uh, the Abhidharma tradition of Vasubandhu in particular, and he and uh, he in particular moved that forward into the realm of uh, Chittamatra or Vijnapti Matra. And um, his students, Dignaga in particular, um, combined his teachings with the system of logic that Dignaga had learned from the greater Indian milieu. So it's traditionally, Yogacara is traditionally ascribed to these two gentlemen, which who lived in the 4th to 5th century, usually like 350 to 450 or so. 4th to 5th, somewhere in that range, sometimes earlier. Most of its doctrines already appeared in a number of, of sutras, century or more earlier. Most notably the Samdhinar Mochana, which she translates as elucidating the hidden connections. And uh, you'll see that this sutra, there's no no universal translation for the name of this sutra. Everybody comes up with a different version of it. Sometimes it's unraveling the uh, intent, the intention. Among the key concepts introduced are this, are Vijnapti Mantra, Three Natures, yeah, he already said this, but the this idea of overturning the basis, Ashraya Paravritti, and the eight consciousnesses. And so we'll come back to this overturning the basis, uh, turning around the basis, meaning turning around the Aliyah Vijnana into an enlightened mind. In the Samdhinya Mochana Sutra, we see this presentation in... Uh, uh, by the Buddha as uh, saying that this sutra and sutras like it represent a third turning of the wheel of the Dharma. Previous to that, there was a sutra called the Akshayamati Nirdesha Sutra, teaching to a bodhisattva named Akshayamati, which uh, presented a scheme of two turnings of the wheel of the Dharma, the first being the earliest teachings of the Buddha focused on the Four Noble Truths, and the second being the teachings of emptiness as presented in sutras such as the Diamond Sutra and the Prajnaparamita, the other Prajnaparamita sutras of various lengths. Um, the Buddha lived around the 5th century BCE or 4th century BCE, but the sutras didn't appear until hundreds of years later. So where were they kept for all that time is the question. And, um, however, Mahayana considers all of them the teachings of the Buddha. And in the earliest teachings, we see this notion that the Buddha taught specifically to different types of people. But uh, in the Akshayamati, which this, which Dan does not mention in the Samdhinar Mochana, uh, we have we see this idea that the Buddha taught in significantly different waves, not only just like individually to different uh, people of capacities, but to like sort of groups of people.
So the first two teachings were the Four Noble Truths and Abhidharma, and then the second is the Madhyamaka school. And the first emphasized dharmas and aggregates, which hide emptiness, leading one to hold a substantialistic view. The Buddha asserted that there's dharmas and aggregates, which is why dance says this is hiding emptiness, which is a very funny thing to say. And the second turning by emphasizing negation while hiding the positive qualities of the dharma might be misconstrued as nihilism. So the general presentation of the third turning is that the first two turnings presented sort of extreme um, variations on uh, the way to view reality and one's world. One is a, a substantially existent, which is what the term Sarvastivada, which is one of the main schools of the earliest teachings of the Buddha, was called that everything exists, and the other that nothing, there is no true nature, the Madhyamaka school. And in order to be a valid school, he says Yogacara had to create a whole system from soup to nuts. And um, he mentions some of the key texts. A char, a Sangha put together this uh, huge encyclopedia called the Yogacara Bhumi Shastra. And um, the interesting thing is, this thing is that he draws heavily on Sanskrit sutras that are in some ways counterparts to the Pali Nikayas. And when we say Nikayas, the Nikayas are the sort of core of the Pali, what, what are more commonly known as the Pali Canon. So normally the Pali Canon is divided into three parts, the sutras, the vinaya, the monastic rules, which include uh, anecdotal situations where the Buddha is presented with a problem caused by someone's behavior and says, well, we should do that, this and this, or not do that and this. And then you have the rule, and, the, and there's a, then and there's analysis of the rule, and then the Abhidharma. Um, but in Sanskrit, we find uh, versions of the sutra section of what's in the Pali canons, and the sutra section is divided into Nikayas, uh, which is a term that I think just means segments or something. And there's the the long discourses, the middle discourses, and the short discourses, and the enumerated discourses, and so forth, that make up the Pali Canon. Um, he mentions Vasubandhu's Abhidharma Kosha, Treasure of Abhidharma, which presents the, uh, the, the teachings of the first turning in great detail, comprehensive detail overview, uh, primarily the Vaibhashika, tradition and um, gives a little background about these brothers the Sangha is believed to have joined this division of Buddhists, Buddhists called the Mahi Shasikas, Shasikas. and uh, they were the first members of the lodge the Yogacharan lodge card carrying members numbers 1 and 0001 and 002 they wrote a lot of books, some of which they attributed to Maitreya. And here's the story. We see the story of how a Sangha, a reference to the story of how Sangha connects with Maitreya, which I think you're all familiar with. And um, 
interesting thing he says is that the texts attributed to Maitreya are different in the Chinese tradition, but he doesn't elaborate on that, unfortunately. I have to look into that. Curious what the Chinese tradition attributes to um, to him. And let's see uh, the story of Vasubandhu's uh, traveling along the path. First, he's a Vaibhashika Buddhist, writes the, the root verses of the treasury of Abhidharma, the Abhidharma Kosha, and over time he begins to become critical of those teachings, or that's uh, usually the way it's put is that he, he was sort of cleaving to the uh, the status quo of the Vaibhashikas when he wrote the root verses, but then he was compelled to reveal his... Uh, uneasiness with those and he wrote a commentary that refutes many of its tendencies and presents much more of a Sautrantika point of view and then he writes some other texts which which interestingly Dan says uh, chart his journey from Abhi, uh, some uh, Vaibhashika or Sautrantika to Yogacara and you can find translations of these if you're interested, Karma City Prakarna on Karma and the five skandhas and an, an investigation into which we did a course on a few years ago. And the, the writings of Asanga and Vastabhan are huge, huge amount of writings. Lots of texts they put out and uh, compendiums such as Yoga Bhumi. Uh, compendium of Mahayana, the Compendium of Abhidharma, and then short little texts, the 20 verses and the, th and the 30 verses, uh, sorry, the Trimshikas, the 30 verses, and the three nature teaching, Trisobhava Nirdesha, and then systematic treatises, the 20 verses, and the Madhyanta Vibhanga, and commentaries on sutras. And clearly, their ideas had existed before they lived, because they're so well-developed by the time they live and write that they must have been around for quite a while before them. So they, you can't really say that they're the founders, even though they're, they're the first card holders. Um, Asanga converts Vasubandhu to Yogacara, and the traditional story of that is that he locks them in, in a in their their home one day and uh, and forces him to read Mahayana texts and sutras for like three weeks until finally uh, Vasubandhu gives in and accepts the Mahayana sort of usual brotherly thing to do force your younger brother to accept your own ideas he has uh, tradition assigned some two major disciples, Dignaga, the great logician, and Stiramati, an important early Yogacara commentator. So Dignaga becomes, uh, of the two branches of Yogacara, of logical epistemology, is uh, Dignaga is the main Dharma heir, and then Stiramati is the main Dharma heir of the more Abhidharma version. That meets with some difficulties later on, we'll see. After Vasubandhu, two distinct wings, logico-epistemic, Dignaga, Dharmakirti, Shantarakshita, who famous for bringing Buddhism to Tibet, 
the scholarly tradition and monastic traditions of Buddhism to, to Tibet. And Ratnik Kirti, who's a um, major figure in the late development of Buddhism in India and has uh, has written a, a major text on Vipassana, which is uh, the only one that's still not translated, but it's in the works and will be out someday soon. And then there's an Abhidharmic psychology tradition uh, represented by people like Stiramati, Dharmapala, and Xuan Song, the famous uh, pilgrim from China who goes to India and travels around and writes an amazing travelogue that becomes one of the major sources for for our knowledge of what was going on in India in that time, which is like around the 6th, 7th century, I guess. And then a gentleman named Viniti Deva. The first branch focuses on epistemology and logic. The other refined elaborate the Abhidharma analysis not entirely separated and uh, several uh, notions of the Abhidharma wing came under severe attack the Ali Vijnana which was denounced as something to, akin to the Hindu notions of Atman and Prakriti the primordial nature and he, according to Dan the critiques became so entrenched or heavy that the Abhidharma wing atrophied <laughs> And by the end of the 8th century, it was eclipsed by the logico-epistemic tradition and a hybrid that combined basic Yogacara with Tathagata-Garbha thought, which is clearly what comes into Tibet, the combination of Yogacara and Tathagata-Garbha. And he makes this interesting claim that the logico, great word, logico-epistemological wing sidesteps the critique of the Aliyavijnana by using the term Chitta-santana, uh, mind stream, or sorry, san, santana, mind stream instead of Aliyavijnana. But uh, the term chitta-santana, mind stream, uh, is much more clear that this, this entity is not a fixed entity in the sense of a reified self. Then he makes this weird claim that we have to take him up on someday. He says the Tathagata Garba hybrid school was no stranger to the charge of smuggling notions of selfhood into its doctrines. <laughs> what a weird thing to say. For example, it explicitly defined Tathagata Garba as permanent, pleasurable, self, and pure. And he's referring to the famous... Uh, presentation of the ultimate nature of reality as Buddhahood or Buddha nature, uh, Buddha uh, Dharmakaya from the Mahayana version of the Parinirvana Sutra. And he says, many Tathagatagarbha texts, in fact, argue for the acceptance of selfhood as a sign of higher accomplishment. Very bizarre statement. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that personally, and I don't know if anybody would. And, and maybe that's from the Chinese Yogacara tradition, what comes down into into the Chinese tradition, I don't know. But that's certainly not what we get from the, the Tibetan tradition. The hybrid school attempts to conflate Tathagatagarbha with Aliyavijnana. That also is not... Uh, 
something that the Tibetan, that the tradition that goes into Tibet and comes to us from Tibetans would assert that the Tathagata Garba is conflated with Aliyah Vishnana. They're very different. And um, uh, some texts, they're not um, the, uh, what I think what he's referring to is that in certain texts, in particular the Lanka Avatara Sutra, there's this notion of the Aliyah Vijnana uh, going through a transformation or a turning around at the basis. This term Ashraya Parivrita that we saw earlier, or Parivriti. And then it it, uh, it transforms into the uh, Tathagatagarbha Buddha nature. But uh, we would not say that it, it still is the Ali Vijnana at that point. Ali Vijnana disappears, universally considered to be disappearing at the time of enlightenment. And Tathagatagarbha to become evident at that point. And, and to say that this is presented in the Radha Gotra Bhagra Uttara Tantra is very strange. It, it is perhaps presented in there's this text famous in Chinese tradition called the Awakening of Faith. It's very interesting Yogacara text that, that I think presents this idea, but not these other two. He gives a little background on the Chinese tradition, and then he says, uh, in Tibet, the Nyingma and Dzogchen schools, interesting how he separates those, uh, settled in a hybrid version similar to the Chinese Tathagatagarbha hybrid, while the Galupas subdivided Yogacara into a, a number of different types. Uh, and what he's referring to is the Yogacara Sautrantika Madhyamaka and the Yogacara Swatantrika Madhyamaka schools, all of which are considered lower than the Prasanga Madhyamaka in terms of the doxographical classifications or the hierarchy of which teachings are higher than which others. He says the Tibetans tended to view the logical tradition as distinct from Yogachar proper, and that is true in particular with the Galupa tradition that cleave to the logical tradition but not the Yogachara. And so they try to separate them as different traditions. So the school is called Yogachara because it's focused on practice, a comprehensive therapeutic framework for engaging in practices that lead to the goal of the Bodhisattva path, enlightened cognition. And meditation was the the uh, skillful means for doing that, or the laboratory. And it, it focused on the question of consciousness from a variety of approaches, meditation, psychological analysis, epistemology, inter including how we know what we know, how perception operates, and what validates knowledge. Three important aspects of cognition or epistemology. How we know what we know, how perception operates in that scheme, and how we come to valid cognition or valid knowledge. It's summarized as nothing but cognition, vijnapti matra, consciousness only or mind only, which has sometimes been interpreted as indicating a type of metaphysical idealism, that mind alone is real and everything else created by mind. However, the Yogacharan writings themselves argue something very different. And unfortunately, he has no references in here. Um, 
at the back we have a bibliography, but no notes. It would be interesting to see him annotate these claims. Uh, the claim that mind alone is real and that everything else created by mind is what he's calling metaphysical idealism and saying that Yogacara is not that. And that Yogacara writings themselves argue something very different. Consciousness is not the ultimate reality, but rather the root problem. So he's interpreting cognition only, or nothing but cognition, in the sense that um, our, our main concern on the path is cognition. Our only concern on the path is cognition, because that's the source of ignorance and the source of enlightenment. And so we need to focus on just cognition. We don't need to, to focus on other aspects of our world. The problem, this root problem, i.e. ignorance about the true nature of reality that results in the experience of samsara emerges in ordinary mental operations and can only be solved by bringing those operations to an end. It tends to be misinterpreted as a form of metaphysical idealism, primarily because its teachings are taken for ontological propositions rather than epistemological descriptions of the cognitive process or karmic as he says warnings <laughs> warnings danger about uh, karmic problems so um, he focuses now on this issue of ontology versus epistemology and how westerners are obsessed with ontology what exists whereas the yogacharans were dismissive of what exists and instead focused primarily if not exclusively on how we know what we know the yogacharas focus on cognition and their focus on cognition and consciousness grew out of its analysis of karma and not for the sake of metaphysical speculation And then he says, he goes into this long presentation of why Yogacara is not idealism in the Western sense of the word. And uh, thanks to Kevin, we know that, it, uh, who has a background in this, as we've, as he has shared before, and uh, he claims that this is a very helpful presentation. Do you want to say anything quickly about this, Kevin, or anyone else? No, I don't know anything about it actually. I was, <laughs> but but I was impressed that he, you know, tried to um, that he did that compare and contrast in almost like a co-evolution of these, you know, Western uh, philosophers coming to some of the same conclusions. Not exact, but I thought that was interesting. That's great. That's all. Okay. Could I say one thing too? Yeah, any, please. This goes yep. back to the prior page, actually, the sentence you mentioned about how the Yogacara focus on cognition and consciousness grew out of the analysis of karma and not for the sake of metaphysical speculation. So isn't that essentially very Buddha-like? Because the Buddha himself also tended to dismiss the issue of, you know, the Big Bang and the you know, the 14 totally. questions. So it yeah, seems totally. that, that sentence is really 
lines him right up with where the Buddha came from. Totally, yeah. The Buddha's famous uh, analogy of if you're shot by an arrow, you're going to focus on taking the arrow out. You're not going to spend time on analyzing what kind of arrow it is and where it was made and how old it is and so on and so forth. As well as the, the famous 14 questions that he would not answer. What is Bitcoin? What is blockchain? Um, things like that. And let's see. So here we have a little delving into epistemology. So, um, what page have you gotten to there? I'm on page eight. Thank you. The first full paragraph since one's ontology depends on what one's epistemology makes allowable or maybe sort of understandable. Uh, many Indian schools try to include things in their list of valid means of knowledge that would facilitate their claims. And this is an interesting point where uh, each tradition comes up with a list of what are what are valid means of cognition. And the Hindus were, uh, they weren't really Hindus at the time, but they were uh, Veda followers and Upanishad followers and so forth. And their scriptures were considered to be uh, sacredly created, not by humans, but by divine author authorship or sort of spontaneously emanated scriptures that were divine uh, messages, and so they were authorities. And the Buddhists um, uh, rejected the authority of of Hindu scriptures as well as Buddhist scriptures, which is interesting. The uh, Dignaga, in particular, did this radical thing where, uh, whereas earlier Buddhists sort of relied on scriptures as ultimate authorities. You know, the Buddha said this and this sutra and so forth. But by the time we get to uh, the turn of the millennium and certainly hundreds of years later when uh, Maitreya Sanghavasubandhu and Dignaga are alive, there's all these Mahayana sutras which many people did not accept as the Buddha's word. And so the whole reliance upon scripture as a authoritative, valid means of cognition was no longer uh, viable. And so the Buddhists rely only on uh, perception and inference. An interesting little comment he makes about the Jains where um, they did not accept perception as a valid means of knowledge, <laughs> but only inference. Sort of curious what that what that's about, how, how they could, uh, Jainism only inference, how they defend that. Well, aren't there questions about the validity of our perception? Yeah, there are. But uh, isn't that because there's contradictory perceptions? That's an interesting question. I mean, if, you know, the, just the whole, no we, we tend to assume a lot about, you know, the validity of, of perception, but I think there's ways in which people question that too. So I don't think that there are. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't very, think the chains are completely ways. unique there. But I don't know why they would then also trust inference. I guess I was wondering. 
Yeah. And what basis is there? Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. know why inference would be any more valid in that situation than like if you see smoke, it's logical. A mountainside, yeah. you're going to assume it's fire. You're going to infer that it's fire, but you could get there and realize that it actually is just smoke smoldering or something. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, that wasn't fire. It was actually just smoke. I assumed it was fire, but I was wrong. I just, I don't know. I struggled a little bit to see why inference would have any more validity then. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting area. So we've wiped out, basically, we've now wiped out all the, the typical valid means of cognition. The only thing that's left now is yogic direct, right? <laughs> I guess so. It could so, be, it could be so. some more abstract reasoning, like mathematical propositions and things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, reality is mathematical. I love that. So for the Buddhist system, we have both perception and valid cognition. Um, Derek, I was wondering one other thing in this section of how how do things like miracles or gods doing stuff, things like that, fit into the a scheme where you're relying on perception and inference? Um, well, theoretically, people uh, witnessed these things and perceived them perceived the Buddha doing miracles and perceived other people performing miracles. So you had that uh, perceptual uh, basis for those experiences. And then uh, the inferential scheme that would then be used around that, I think, would be that uh, material objects are not um, real are sort of fungible material world is fungible and that's sort of like the this whole idea of mind only it's in not not in as a, a sort of precise or well-developed system as the yoga charans have but it's sort of the whole background of the entire indian milieu the whole indian worldview is that the the entire world of samsara is created by ignorance of not knowing correctly and with the with the sort of implication that if you know correctly then you don't experience samsara and so the the whole presentation of the three worlds and the six realms and everything are all like based on the ones uh, incorrect view or, or um, ignorant view about the way things are. So that's that's really there in the whole background of the Indian worldview, and the Yogacharas are basically just advancing that idea to the forefront. A little bit of description of uh, how Buddhist logic works, uh, talking about inference and how inference is based on so-called fact of perception. Fact, or it's a little bit dubious, but uh, perception. And perception is based on, as Cynthia was, in, was indicating, perception is sort of uh, based on consensus, and consensus is not ultimately valid. And so we see later versions of the system of valid cognition, such as that presented by Mipom 
and his sort of knowledge of there being two levels of, uh, of valid cognition, a conventional level, which is based on consensus and therefore not ultimately true, and an ultimate level of valid cognition, which is based on, as Cynthia said, yogic direct valid cognition. This idea of what is a thing and what is a real thing is that a real thing, by standards of Buddhist logic, must produce an observable effect. And um, they argued whether it was real only when it was producing the effect, which is the Satrajika position, that things exist as real only when they're productive. And that um, in the uh, time period before their productivity and after they don't exist. Whereas, strangely, the earlier school of Buddhism, the uh, Sarvastivada school of Buddhism that precedes the Sautrajika position, held that there's a past and a future of a thing, of a dharma. It's a very bizarre sort of view, but... And let's see. The other, the other statement here that's important is that uh, is that if something is not producing an effect at the or is not observable currently, that it is potentially observable. What is not presently observed but is in principle observable can be known by inference. And that a real phenomena or thing is observable. Very. Yes. Can a thing exist and not produce an effect? No. So it's somewhat tautological then. It is. Okay. Yeah. So that's like you know that brings you to the primacy of causes and effects. That basically things are causes or effects, and there's. There's no thing that's not a cause or an effect. Well, don't things at least bring up their next moment of being? That's their cause, their aspect of being a cause. So, so in that sense, a thing can not cause anything except its own continuance. Which it always do. Which, yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to say that something only causes one effect one and only effects. It's hard to isolate a stream of uh, causation in a, a uh, that uh, has that that uh, real linear 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 quality of one to one. It's uh, it's difficult to isolate that and and say that it didn't impact everything. You know all these other things around it. Right. In fact, that's impossible. Everything impacts everything. Simultaneously. Right. Everything is a conspiracy of everything. <laughs> and where would you put it? <laughs> um, let's see. The, the logical wing of Yogacara drew a sharp distinction between perception and inference. Perception involves sensory cognitions of unique, momentary, discrete particulars. So now we're, we're uh, starting along his 
explanation of mind only. Inference involves linguistic conceptual universals. Since words are meaningful and communicative only to the extent that they designate and participate in universal classes commonly shared and understood by users of the language, which is a complicated way of saying that perception is uh, experiences unique uh, momentary real things that are uh, causally efficacious and observable, whereas inference generalizes, makes generalizations about groups or classes of such phenomena. A uh, simple example is the idea of trees and a forest. And inferences are true or false depending on how accurately or erroneously they approximate the, the sensory world. But even when linguistically true, they are still true only relative to the sensations, meaning the things that are perceived that they approximate. Conversely, sensation and only sensation is beyond language. It's non-conceptual perception. He's using this word sensation for uh, perception or non-conceptual sense experience. Sensory cognition devoid of linguistic overlay or theoretic assertions is correct cognition, valid correct cognition, precisely not approximately true. So this is the earlier tradition of Buddhism where our senses perceive reality, true reality. Is it meaningless to us without a language or linguistic overlay? Say the first part of what you said again. Isn't that meaningless to us as humans without some kind of linguistic overlay? I don't know. Do you, do you think like you can, you can, uh, you don't no. think you can experience things without having to describe them um, to oneself? You can, but you can't process that. That's what I mean by meaningless. Oh, sure you oh, can. Oh, without meaning. I see. But you can eat things, you know, and you can. Well, wait, are you, are you saying that you're equating meaning with language? Uh, to some extent, for us as humans, yes. But there's meaning without language. But it's I don't think that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a valid map, mapping. No. I mean, it's it's something we habitually. We I mean, we clearly do use language a lot in you know talking about meaning, but I don't actually think that they're synonymous. Okay, I guess I need a definition of meaning. <laughs> I I was thinking about. I mean, this might be a little basic, but I was thinking about like music and visual art too when reading this section and just like, that's, I'm wondering where they fit into the scheme actually, because it is a way that we communicate and form meaning around things that is not linguistic. Um, but it is conceptual. But it is conceptual. The, the, way, we, the way we understand it. Right. Yeah. Music yeah, or sound. Is. The whole appreciation is, is, is non-linguistic. But it's not universally conceptual in the same way, which is what I think the linguists would argue. How, how does that differ from all experience? Doesn't all experience have a non-linguistic aspect and then a linguist, linguistic aspect? Because language overlays culture and background, history, 
lots of other things. Totally. But I don't, I don't think that language does that more universally necessarily than like experiencing other art forms. I don't know. Look, look, I don't think Beethoven sounds any different to a Chinese person than to a German person. Oh, you, you don't think so? Have you ever listened to Chinese opera? Well, I mean, it sounds different to the Chinese than it does to us. But Chinese and, language and, also sounds very different to a Chinese person than it does to me. So I'm like, talking about Beethoven, the, the music of Beethoven. You do the Fifth Symphony. It sounds the same in any language. It's Beethoven's well, language. Yes, Words. but not yes. not all cultures work on uh, the the same tonal scale. There are cultures that have totally yeah, different. Granted, but, but that but that that tonal scale. You give me a Chinese tonal scale, I'll hear what they play. I'm not going to hear it my version of it. I'm going to hear their version of it. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because of, because I don't have any linguistic. Uh, uh, um, anchor to put around it. It's just going to be an experience. Right, but I'm, I'm not saying that you would have linguistic anchors, but I, I, I don't know, but I suspect that our, our cultural wrappings may influence how we hear, you know, music from our, that is familiar or not familiar, for example, to our culture. Our self-talk around something, of course, is going to be linguistically uh, 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 anchored. But the initial experience, when that music washes over you. I, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not talking about it from a linguistic point of view, but that's okay. I don't, let's not get. Well, but Rob, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be the same experience. I do agree that, like, we have acculturated experiences of music. Um, and I feel like it's not a link, like having a conceptual experience of music is not a linguistic experience. I agree with you about that. I also think that language is the same way that like, I don't think that like there's some universal, there is not a universal language or linguistics experience. Like there's all these different languages and linguistic experiences that everyone has lots of different experiences of music and art that are acculturated, but they're not. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. Exactly. Uh, so, so no one here has ever had an experience where the words were literally blown out of their mind. You've never no, been. There? No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, Rob. I'm not saying that there's like a linguistic processing of, I don't think. Cause, Cause I've had that experience. I mean, I know what it's like to have, you know, so I, I'm, I, I'm not buying. I'm not buying that my experience is rooted in my self-talk. So, but eventually, once you have that experience, you're going to want to assign meaning and purpose. And isn't that what language does? Assigns meaning and purpose, and then you can, when you recall the experience, no. you don't recall. <laughs> you recall the language. You can only experience the experience if you're there. But do right. you? You need yes, yes. I don't think you need language to have a conceptual experience of something. And, and you're back to the question I think that Neil raised that meaning equates to the language, and I don't. I certainly don't think that's necessary. Meaning does not have to be conceptual. I so, agree. What is the meaning when no. you don't put it into words? What is the meaning that's not put into words? That's what, whatever your experience in that moment is, is the meaning. 
But you that's do it. have meaningless. Huh? And that's not meaningless. That's not meaningless. Not at all. Do, do you have to put love into words? Um, so if I'm having a sensation of love, um, I, I'm not sure that I would be able to say that that's the case until I put it into words. Uh. You wouldn't be able to say it, but you still could experience it. <laughs> yes, but you but have I would, to perceive it. You have to perceive it. And to go back to sound, um, there are languages that we can't even perceive. The ticks that are uh, processed and spoken by certain uh, African um, tribes, I don't even hear. And a lot of the nuances of a language, I literally don't hear in a Cyrillic um, language, for instance. Um, and, and so if the perception's not there, then there is no, um, there, there's no cognition. Yeah, no, there's cognition, but again, language is more like a tool. It's after the experience, then I can use language to record it, disseminate it, give, give it, it more meaning, give it purpose for this or that. I can play with it. So, right, but yeah, you have language to, is kind of like have, after the fact. It's a tool. You, you have to language. Language is after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. Right, but you have to It's not the first thing. Well, what I mean, unless you're talking about, I mean, I feel like artistic language can be like a right. Because then, once you do that, then you can play with the language and your creativity and create something out of language. It's weird, right? Because then you can create something out of language, just but without experience. But we all have to agree on the language <laughs> so we can understand your experience. The thing is, yeah. concept, concepts actually tend to flatten experience, tend to make it smaller. They don't, they don't expound it. They, 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 actually, they actually make, make your experience, in a sense, less. It's like, having, it's like having somebody chatting next to you in the movie all, you know, the whole time. It, yeah. yeah, so it, like if you're writing music or poetry often they're they're just like i have no idea like where it came from it just like appeared yeah so when you do that right your world becomes smaller right because you're conceptualizing because you're conceptualizing yeah but i think you have to perceive it in other words not everyone perceives coldness the same or um, heat the same because different cultures may be accustomed to different things and so that perception is not even universal there's this idea with in music or it's not an idea they've they've proved this scientifically that music that can be challenging to listen to at first as you, if you get used to it over time you start to like it more so like heavy metal or like free jazz are examples of this where when you first hear it you actually, you, your, your ear physically can't handle it. It's like pushing the hairs in the wrong direction. But then as you hear it more and more, you get used to it and then you start to actually like it. You can say the same thing about scotch. 
Yes, totally. The point is that you bring back to the text. It says, you know, um, they insist that we should understand where the errors lie and correct the way we cognize accordingly. So until you cognize, your experience is meaningless. I guess that's my proposition. Okay, so are you defining cognition as a as a linguistic exercise, as a as a as a uh, as a as a discursive thing, like words in a row in your head? That's cognition. Uh, unless you can um, cognize directly yogically, yes. I just feel like I can cognize a piece of visual art without um, connecting words to it. Bingo. So I wonder what cognition means, right. uh, Emily. Yeah, it sounds like we need to kind of hone in on definitions of cognition and definitions of meaning in order to, Derek, should we start a new, uh, what do they call the, the, the de- that book of definitions? <laughs> we need to expand it or start our own version, right? It comes up later in the reading. We have to agree on the, what did he say? The epistemology comes up here somewhere. We have to agree first before we can debate. Thoughts <laughs> in your head are not, he says. You know, I, I are you saying that art is non-conceptual? Am I saying that? Is, is that what all of you are saying? I am not no. saying that. No, I, but I, I, would, art I is, say Art that. is a non-linguistic form of conception. concept. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also the, the initial experience of it could be non-conceptual, just like any sensory initial experience, right? Right. How could it be art? There's something. Well, the, that, otherwise, why would art exist? Art, art itself is a concept, but the experience of an individual instance of it can be non-conceptual. And those three. And any artist would say, you know. Um, that it only means what it means to you. It, there is no universal meaning for any art. But nor would there be for any word or like language either. That's I don't think. Again, yeah. So the main the main point of this section is where the author is asserting that an obsession with ontology is not necessary. And that the Yogacara tradition instead focuses on understanding ontological attachment as a symptom of cognitive projection. And in that sense... Eric, you're humming. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and in, in that sense, it's called uh, cognition only. Cognition only in terms of what's important only only the way we cognize things only the way we understand our world and that this constant predilection to having to concretize our experience into ontological entities is the sort of culmination of the whole uh, epistemological error that we make that creates what we call samsara which is a very interesting way of understanding the mind only in Yogacara. Personally, I find it, it not convincing that this is what's presented in the Tibetan tradition of of uh, the text that we've been reading, where it actually does seem like there's a rejection of any extra mental reality explicitly. 
I mean, this is why I, I wrote you that message a while back, because, you know, often when you read something that relates to this, and then somebody throws in right in the middle of it, of course, there are external things. So they completely subvert that whole argument. So it's a very, you know, it's a, a very confusing, because I think everybody presents it in different ways. I actually like this, the way you just described it. I think that's actually one of the more meaningful descriptions of the use of cognition only. I mean, some people describe it as the only way in which we experience the world is through our mind and therefore it's mind only just, you know, because cognition is the means by which we know. So it's, again, it's not a question of is there or isn't there an external reality, but whatever we know about it is coming through mind and therefore it's mind only. That's another one. It's like, there are so many different ways it's, it's, these terms are used and interpreted. Interesting. I, so he, he construes Yogacara as a type of epistemological idealism with the proviso that it's, the purpose of its arguments was not to engender an improved ontological theory or commitment. I'm on the bottom of page 11, now on the top of page 12, but it, rather an insistence that we pay the fullest attention to the epistemological and psychological conditions compelling us to construct and attach to ontological theories, our ontological obsession, constantly trying to understand what is instead of uh, trying to understand how we know, how we know what we know. So let's look at the, the next section, karma, matter, and cognitive appropriation on page 12. The key to Yogacara theory lies in the Buddhist notion of karma inherited and from the earlier tradition and rigorously reinterpreted. As earlier Buddhist texts already explained, karma is responsible for suffering and ignorance, which is a sort of odd statement to make. Usually it's the other way around, is that um, ignorance is responsible for karma. Ignorance is the root, and karma is a manifestation of ignorance. But this is his his presentation, and that karma consists of any intentional activity of body, speech, and mind. We know that. Since the crucial factor is intent, and intent is a cognitive condition, whatever lacks cognition is both non-karmic and non-intentional. Hence, by definition, whatever is non-cognitive can have no karmic influence or consequences, things that are non-sentient, like rocks and so forth. Since Buddhism aims at overcoming ignorance and suffering through the elimination of karmic conditioning, Buddhism, uh, Yogacara's reason, is only concerned with the analysis and correction of whatever falls within the domain of cognitive conditions. This is further elaborating his position that mind only means, means uh, mind alone is worth working on. Hence, questions about the ultimate reality of non-cognitive things are irrelevant and useless. Further, Yogacharans emphasize that categories such as materiality are cognitive categories. This whole classification of there being matter separate from mind and mind separate from matter, is just these are just cognitive classifications that have no actual um, meaning or have no real um, existence in the world. They're just categories created by conceptual frameworks. Materiality is the word for the colors, textures, sounds, 
and cetera, we experience in acts of perception is only to the extent that they are experienced, perceived, and ideologically grasped, thereby become objects of attachment, becoming objects of attachment, that they have karmic significance through our cognition and intention around them. Skipping to the next paragraph, in contrast to the cognitive karmic dimension, Buddhism considered material elements, rupa, the, f the first skanda, karmically neutral. The problem with material things is not their materiality, but the psychology of appropriation, desiring, grasping, clinging, attachment that infests our ideas and perceptions of such things. And this is echoed from uh, for, through every tradition, every great teacher, that uh, that objects are not the problem. Attachment to objects is the problem, right? As Tila said to Naro, right? That is exactly what I was thinking. At the end of the paragraph, the last sentences, or two sentences for Buddhists, the process by which conditioning becomes embodied, samskara being the fourth skanda or uh, karmic conditioning, conditioned factors, is samskara, is not confined to a single lifetime, but accrues over many. Samsara is the karmic enactment of this repetition, the reoccurrence of cognitive embodied habits in new life situations and life forms. Skipping to the next page. Um, he starts to talk about the, the uh, lack of a self. Um, he says the anxiety at the end of the first overlapping paragraph in 13 the anxiety about our, our lack of self and the co all the cognitive and karmic mischief that anxiety generates is called several things uh, it's called the obstruction of the knowable jnaya varana um, i.e. our self-obsessions prevent us from seeing things as they are. So this is the cognitive veil or obscuration of the two, uh, being one of the two veils of, uh, or obstructions to enlightenment. And abhuta parikalpata, imagining something that's not there. Imagining something to exist in a locus in which it is an examine. It is, it is absent, in particular, a permanent self. And then he goes on to describe the uh, the analogy of seeds, which becomes so famous in Yogacara, in the uh, the way that the Aliya Vishnana works. So um, the uh, they analyze the causing conditions of karma in terms of seeds, and let's see, we all know this analogy. Uh, so skipping to the bottom, in the very bottom sentence, two sentences, in general, Yogacara differentiates inner seeds, personal condition, from external seeds, those conditioned by others. So the, the larger consensus versus our own personal predilections. Our own seeds can be modified or affected by exposure to the external seeds. And uh, so this is how our conditioning happens. Uh, let's see, on the next page, 14, the first paragraph, another metaphor for karmic conditioning that accompanies the seed metaphor is 
perfuming, vasana. So this is a, an important term in the scheme of the path in the Tibetan or later Indian Buddhist tradition where they, they uh, subdivide the, um, the cognitive obscuration into two stages where the first stage of the cognitive, of the elimination rather, of the cognitive obscuration is where we're uh, reducing the amount of seeds that are perpetuated by our karmic continuum, sorry, that are perpetuated by our ignorance throughout our karmic continuum or our psycho psychophysical continuum, or not physical, our psychological continuum. And uh, at the eighth Bhumi, we're no longer subject to the seeds of karmic conditioning, but there's still this idea that there's this perfuming that exists, uh, which is the um, sort of uh, subtle remnants of the conditioning that still lead us to not be completely enlightened. However, we're not perpetuating the the sort of clunky quality of the seeds of of karmic activity from the eighth bumi onward. But he doesn't mention any of that. He just says these are two different analogies. But in the Indian later Indian Buddhist tradition, there these two take very specific meanings: the vasana versus the the bijas, the seeds. At the end of this paragraph, he said, "There's typically there's three types of perfuming." linguistic and conceptual habits, habits of self-interest and self-grasping, and the, uh, which is consistent in the belief in the self and what belongs to it, and then habits leading to subsequent life situations. The perfuming, the bhavanga, vasana, the, uh, the, the karmic patterning that results in, a, in the next birth, that gets transferred over into the next birth i.e. the long-term karmic consequences of specific activities. He says there's a debate about the relation between the seeds and the perfuming. Some say they're the same thing, just two different terms, other that uh, the seeds are simply the effects of the perfuming. Still others contend that seed refers to the chain of conditioned habits one already has, while perfuming denotes the experiences one has that modify or affect the development of one's seed. So various options between these two, neither of which really approximates how it's used in the Tibetan tradition. Um, he references these uh, different schemes of beings at the end of this paragraph. He says, beings utterly devoid of wholesome seeds were called ichantikas, incorrigibles. Usually they're called cut-off class. Such beings could never reach enlightenment. So there was this idea that uh, some beings had uh, severe karmic impediment. Um, and we saw reference. We see reference to this to these different classes of beings or gotra um, throughout the texts we've been reading, and. Uh, and we'll come back to that in, in next week's class. Let's see, the karmic cause of the fundamental disease or dukkha is, is desire, and uh, which, is, which is the sort of early 
version of the path that the Buddha presented as the root of suffering is desire, where later on the root of suffering is ignorance. But Yogacara focuses exclusively on cognitive and mental activities in relationship to their intentions, the operations of consciousness, since the problem is located there. And uh, so Buddhists, Buddhism has always identified ignorance and desire as the primary causes. And so therefore the Yogacharans are focused on, on these cognitive uh, the cognitive mistake of ignorance that leads to desire, in fact, which he doesn't quite describe. But on the next page, Yogacharans describe enlightenment as resulting from overturning the cognitive basis, ashraya parivritti, overturning the conceptual projections and imaginings which act as the base of our cognitive actions. This overturning transforms the basic mode of cognition from consciousness, vijnana, dualistic consciousness or knowing, dualistic knowing, into jnana, direct knowing. And then the next paragraph, he gets into this issue of materiality. The case of material elements is important for understanding one reason why Yogacara is not metaphysical idealism. No Yogacara text denies materiality as a valid Buddhist category. On the contrary, Yogacharans include materiality in their analysis, which is something that we should challenge. Not convinced that he's totally correct on that. Their approach to materiality is well rooted in Buddhist precedents. Frequently, Buddhist texts substitute the term sensory contact for the term materiality. And he's, what he's saying is, um, uh, thank you, Neil. Take care. I take it you're leaving at this point. And um, what he's saying is that uh, the emphasis in, in the Buddhist scheme of the, the different elements of reality, when there's a reference to matter or materiality, is not the ontological status of, an, of that as an entity, but instead the experience of that, the epistemological experience of solidity that is, is the major factor that characterizes what is referred to as matter. Uh, so he says even the earliest Buddhist texts explain the four primary elements are the sensory qualities of solidity, fluidity, temperature, and mobility. Their characterization as earth, water, fire, air is declared an abstraction, a cognitive uh, abstraction due to the predilection for ontological uh, concretization. Instead of concentrating the fact of material existence, we observe how a physical thing is sensed or perceived. Yogacara never denies that there are sense objects, but it denies that it makes any sense to speak of cognitive objects occurring outside of an act of cognition. And this is a more generally acceptable way of explaining this. Imagining such an occurrence is itself a cognitive act. <laughs> And Yogacara is interested in why do we feel compelled to concretize? Um, everything we, our entire world is created or experienced through cognition. 
and including this idea that there might be things independent of that. The mind doesn't create the physical world, but it produces the interpretive categories through which we know and classify that world. And it does this so seamlessly that we mistake our interpretations for the external world, for the world itself. Uh, skipping a sentence, in simple terms, we are blinded by our own self-interest and prejudices. Our desires, unenlightened cognition is an appropriative act. So Yogacara does not speak about subjects and objects, which is more common in the in Madhyamaka tradition and in the earlier Abhidharma tradition of subjects and objects. objects. Instead, the analysis uses the terms the analysis of cognition or perception uses these terms grasper, and he gives the Sanskrit grahaka, and what is grasped, grahya, which uh, Carl has been translating from the Tibetan Nongwa and Nong um, Chen as apprehender and apprehended. And that's why he keeps using those odd terms because it's it's a nuance or a subtlety in the Yogacara tradition about dualistic experience that there's an apprehension and an apprehender, but to, to call them subjects and objects creates ontological entities out of them. And instead there's this these uh, cognitive poles of experience where one is an apprehender there, and there's this sense of the apprehender apprehending what is apprehended. Uh, let's see. On the top of page 16, deceptive trick is built into the way consciousness operates at every moment. Consciousness projects and constructs a cognitive object in such a way that it disowns its own creation pretending the object is out there in order to render that object capable of being appropriated. Very nice description of of the way cognition creates ontologicalness entities. Harriet, Henrietta, sorry. This this reminded me, and I I can't quite pinpoint it, but it just reminds me of Chogun Trumpa's uh, description that, yeah, this idea that we're being tricked or we are tricking. Yeah, that the mind tricks itself and yeah. creates creates this facade of a world as being real. Yeah, I was. Yeah, just, it is like that, isn't it? Yeah, really, kind of struck me through this whole thing. Yeah, this was a nice part. Uh, even while what we cognize is occurring within our active cognition, we cognize it as if it is external to our consciousness. Realization of this. Vision opti matra, cognition only, exposes this trick intrinsic to consciousness's workings, thereby eliminating. When it, when the trickster is seen for what it is, it's totally uh, dissolves, apparently. When that deception is removed, one's modu cognition is no longer termed vijnana, dualistic consciousness. It has become direct cognition, jnana. Um, let's see, Cog consciousness engages in this deceptive game because there's no self in an effort to sort of create the sense of a self, um, which is the most pernicious, erroneous view, <laughs> is that there's a self, there's no such self, and deep down we know that. Deep down you know that there's no self. <laughs> I love it when they say that. 
I don't know about that. Uh, this makes us anxious since it entails that no self or entity identity endures forever. In order to assuage that anxiety, we attempt to construct a self to fill the anxious void to do something enduring. Anyway. So, so even if if we don't quite understand what we're doing, we feel anxious. <laughs> even I mean that That's... anxiety is universal. So. You know, it's. Whether... But you just said even if we don't understand what we're doing, isn't that why you're anxious? Because you don't understand what you're right. doing. Right. Uh, I mean, that, that <laughs> that's not what you meant, though. But, but okay. Isn't that the fundamental dukkha? Right. <laughs> so okay, further further on this issue of materiality, yogi charns deny the existence of external objects in two senses, or two ways uh, to let's see in terms of conventional experience they don't deny objects such as chairs but rather they reject the claim that such things appear anywhere else than in consciousness it is external eternality not objects that they challenge while objects are admissible as conventionalism in more precise terms there are no trees these are merely words and concepts that exist in our mind the words, these words and concepts are mental projections. So the point is not to elevate consciousness, but to warn us not to be fooled by our own cognitive narcissism. I like that term. Cognitive narcissism. I what isn't there a famous like quote about that? I I think, therefore I am. Isn't that what that is? Descartes. Descartes, and who is the other one? I. I I uh, I am because I do or something like that. So then he goes through the, some of the schemes. So we have the eight consciousnesses, and I think we're all familiar with those at this point. Um, let's see, on 17, that last, that second chapter is an interesting one. Early Buddhist Abhidharma focusing on the mental and cognitive aspects of karma expanded the three components of the mental experience world. Mind, manas, mental objects, manodhatu. So manodhatu is the manas dhatu when we talk about the 18 dhatus and mental consciousness, manovijnana into a complex system of categories. The apperceptive vector in any cognitive moment of the mind, so the the you know the apprehending aspect of the manas is called the chitta. So the manas has these two aspects, the chitta. The objects, textures, emotional, blah, 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 tones of cog chitta's cognitions are called chaitas. Chaita being a derivative linguistic term from chitta, meaning that which is sort of secondary to or uh, subsequent to or derivative or associated, he says, with chitta. And these are divided into numerous categories, and these are the famous 51 mental factors, universal and so forth, uh, object-dependent, wholesome and unwholesome, right? And then uh, 
finally on page 18, so the second full paragraph. Let's see. The Yogacharans responded, and he's saying to the earlier version of uh, the arrangement of consciousness by the Buddhist schools into six levels. Uh, partially in, in, uh, in order to solve the problem that he talks about above, where there's a number of situations in which no mind is present or operative, such as deep sleep, unconsciousness, and so forth. But how does the mind then come back and remember everything that happened before and think that it's the same person? So he's saying the Yogacharans... Uh, respond to this problem by rearranging the threefold structure of the mental level of the 18 Dhatus into three new novel types of consciousness. The Manavajnana, the uh, mental consciousness, becomes the sixth and uh, operates just as the other five sense consciousnesses do by surveying the cognitive content of the five senses as well as its own mental contents or objects, thoughts and ideas and memories. And then the manas itself becomes the seventh consciousness, redefined as primarily obsessed with various aspects and notions of self, and thus called the defiled or klishta manas. Uh, the eighth consciousness, Alivijnana, is the warehouse, was totally novel, quite a... Uh, the warehouse consciousness defined in several ways. It's the receptacle of all the seeds, storing experiences as they enter until they're sent back out into the world, into the non-existent external world. And uh, it's also called the vipaka consciousness, the maturing, the, the consciousness where the seeds mature into the experience of the other seven consciousnesses. And then it's also called the basic consciousness, the foundation, since it retains and deploys the karmic seeds that both influence and are influenced by all the other seven consciousnesses. It's not very different from the warehouse consciousness, but sort of uh, indicating that the Aliyavijnana includes all the other consciousnesses. At the bottom, he says, the eighth consciousness is largely a mechanism for storing and deploying seeds of which it remains largely unaware. Interesting way that the Aliyavijnana is described as not being cognizant of its contents it's clear and and aware but it's not it's but it's neutral and not it, it sort of doesn't know what's going on so chittas occur as a stream in the alivijnana but they mostly cognize the activities of the other consciousnesses not their own seeds so for yogachara ignorance Avidya in Sanskrit in part means remaining ignorant of what is transpiring within one's own Aliyavijnana. So ignorance is that our Aliyavijnana remains sort of mute, deaf, blind, and lame, and so forth. Not like knowing what's going on within its own purview. Uh, let's see at the bottom of that overlapping paragraph on 19. Each individual has its own, its, <laughs> their own warehouse consciousness, which perdures, perdue from moment to moment and life to life, though being nothing more than a collection of ever-changing seeds, it's constantly changing and therefore not a permanent self. By God, thank God, God forbid. There's no universal collective mind in Yogacara. 
Enlightenment consists in bringing the eight consciousnesses to an end, replacing them with co enlightened cognitive abilities. So we'll see this in Rongjung Dorje's writings, and this is the the sort the sort of uh, um, early version of the five Buddha wisdoms, overturning the basis basis referring to the Ali Vajnana turns the five sense consciousnesses into immediate cognitions. And the term immediate is very cool that he uses that term immediate because we'll see that Rongjun Dorje uses immediate as well, but in a slightly different maybe sense. Um, let's see, the five senses turn into immediate cognitions that accomplish whatever needs to be done. Um, the sixth consciousness becomes immediate cognitive mastery in which the general and particular characteristics or things are discerned just as they are. That would be like the uh, all discriminating awareness, wisdom or whatever. The discernment is considered non-conceptual. Manas, the seventh, becomes the immediate cognition of equality. The wisdom of equality equalizing self and other. And the warehouse, Ali Vajnana, when it ceases, it's replaced by or or transformed into or replaced by the great mirror, the uh, mirror-like wisdom, Mahadarsha, Shnana, that sees and reflects things just as they are. So transforming the eight consciousnesses into the uh, various wisdoms. I guess he has four versions of wisdom, which is the usual system in the sutra system. Uh, at the end there, one more Yogacara innovation was the notion that a special type of cognition emerged and developed after enlightenment. This post-enlightenment was cognition is called Prishtalabdha Shnana and is concerned with how one has one who has understood things as they actually are, as they actually become, that's weird, as they actually are, Yata Bhutam. Yata Bhutam is a common technical term in the, in the sutras of the third turning, now engages the world to assist other sentient beings, blah, blah, blah. We have the three nature theory, and we've seen that over and over again. The imaginary, the realm, is the first one, the, the realm of causal dependency and the perfection. He calls it the perfectional <laughs> realm. Um, which, like the Madhyamaka notion of emptiness, acts as an antidote, Patipaksha, that purifies or cleanses all dualistic delusional constructions. Then he explains the conceptually constructed realm is the erroneous, narcissistic realm in which we primarily dwell, filled with projections we've acquired and habituated and embodied. Paratantra, the dependent on other nature, emphasizes that everything arises causally dependent on things other than itself, i.e. everything lacks self-existence, and the perfectional realm signifies the absence of swabhava, self-nature, in everything. So those three natures being uh, present in all experience, in all ways, in all places and beings. And when the causally dependent realm is cleansed of all defilement, it becomes enlightened. And these three self-natures are called the three non-self-natures since they lack independent, true, fixed and identities. And he explains in what way they're empty. The first is unreal by definition. The imaginary is imaginary. 
The third is the very definition of emptiness, of self-nature, the perfected. And the second, and he has this very funny statement. He says, in the second realm or, or nature, he says in parentheses, which finally is the only real one, which is probably the statement, the, the one most, uh, the one statement in this uh, essay that I object to the most, <laughs> the real one, is of unfixed nature. Can it, since it can be mixed with either of the other two, it can be mixed with imaginary conceptions, projections, or with the perfected nature of understanding the emptiness. Understanding the purified second nature is equivalent to understanding independent origination in the other schools of Buddhism. And he goes through different stages, schemes and the stages, and he presents the five stages, which is similar to the five paths, slightly, slightly different descriptions. And that's it. So, I don't know, hopefully that was helpful. I loved you guys talking about, what were you, what were you arguing about? I can't quite remember. Can somebody sum that up? Meaning. <laughs> what do you mean yeah. by meaning? Whether there's meaning without concept. Or without words. M music, that's music to my ears. Could just, you mentioned the on the prior page that, this yata bhutam is a technical term in the third turning. Could you either now or yeah. later tell us more about that? Oh, yeah, yata bhutam. The, uh, where is it? Is it was at the bottom of 19. 19. Right above. Yata bhutam. It's famous from the Flintstones. Isn't that what Fred Flintstone says all the time? Yata bhutam. Yeah, no, he says yabba dabba do. Similar, very similar. Um, to be is to do, to do is to be. To... Anyway, dooby dooby do. Dooby dooby do. That was yata. <laughs> Sorry, to, okay. Uh, yata, yata is like the way things are, and Bhutam is, is, uh, um, is uh, existence, the way something abides. So it's like, it's a term for suchness, yata bhutam, is uh, the, uh, the true nature of, of reality. And uh, who has understood things as they actually become? Why is it become? It should be as they are. Um, I don't know, it just appears a lot. And, uh, you know, there's suchness is, is really a translation of ta-ta-ta. And so what is the gloss? What is the difference between ta-ta-ta and yata-bhutam? That's a good question. Well, what you just I said, I don't that, know if this is what you meant, but you, you said there's the things as they are and then the way things abide. So is that the classic thing about the nature and then the many manifestation thing? Or that's something totally different? Yeah, you're referring to the two types of omniscience, understanding of the way things truly are, their nature and the way they appear, their manifestations, their extent. I don't think this refers to that. I think I just happened to say it that way. But Oh, okay. So that's not, Let, you said that it made it sound like that, but I didn't know if that was really. That yeah, that was unintentional. 
Okay. We'll yeah. that up. <laughs> Let me see if I can find something fun on. Yeah, yeah that's fine for later. I just wondered if I could elucidate more if there's anything. Thanks. You know, so th this version of Yogacara that he's putting together here, or presenting here, is very much the Chinese Buddhist version. And uh, if you've ever studied uh, Zen and Zen writings, it's it's sort of the underlying basis for Zen and Chan Buddhism. And in particular, D.T. Suzuki. People here ever read D.T. Suzuki? It's different than Suzuki Roshi, Shonraya Suzuki Roshi. D.T. Suzuki was like one of the first Buddhist scholars that come to the West and wrote extensively about Buddhism and both Indian Buddhism and uh, Zen or Chinese Buddhism. And early on, there was not, you know, there was not much. Uh, there were not that many books around, and I read lots of his writings. And he he talks about Yatabuto himself. Find something that's it sort of triggered that memory of the way he presents it. I'll find that. I read it. He actually Wikipedia. has his Wikipedia. He actually has wonderful book on on Indian Buddhism. One of the I think the best one of the in, best books on Indian Mahayana Buddhism called On Indian Mahayana Buddhism. That's a really wonderful. I have to look on my shelves. I might have that one. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so next week we'll go back to finishing up the introduction and reading the two uh, short and key uh, source texts that are in the appendix. And I'll, I'll circulate that in the reading reminder as usual. Any other comments, questions? Concerns? Okay, then well, let us do our uh, closing chants. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. And by the way, I, I circulated, I think I circulated a, a presentation on this organization called SADRA, which is uh, an organization that sponsors most translations from the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism uh, these days by uh, a, a gentleman, Yaroslavl something or other, on uh, Shakya Chokden this uh, sort of radical Sakya guy. It's on October 30th at 10.30 in the morning. I think I circulated that. If you're interested, you know, I sort of glossed over Sakya Chokden when we went to Carl's description of all the different versions of of Gentong uh, because I knew this Sadra was going to have this presentation. You could just watch that instead. No, just kidding. But um, Sakya Chokden is amazing. His writings are like... Uh, are very interesting. He's 
you know, he's very similar to uh, Rongjung Dorje in in that he's not an extreme Zhentongpa in the way that, you know, Carl describes what an extreme Zhentongpa is and how Rongjung Dorje, if you're going to construe him as a, a Zhentongpa at all, you would sort of call him a sort of uh, moderate <laughs> or centrist or so, or uh, medium. Anyway, thank you very much. Great to see you all. And I thank you, and, and, you and thank you for sending out that that invite. I actually registered for that that talk, so that I'm looking forward. All right. Yeah. Cool. If you missed it and you want it again, let me know, and I'll send it. Yeah, it looks good. It should be interesting. Yeah, he's done. A, he's put out a couple of books on uh, Shakya Chokchen, which look really good. Someday we should delve into. Okay, thank you very much. Nice to see you. Besides, moderates are, you know, that's the operative word anyhow. (laughs) Centrists, moderates. We can't get enough of them. All right. Good night.